Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We all love to eat. Well, I would like to tell you about my friends at the Rib Shack Barbecue on West Bay Drive in downtown Largo. Their menu offers family-sized takeout dinners like delicious ribs, chicken, beef, and pork, or sit-down barbecue dinners, sandwiches, and even desserts. They will also cater your party. Everything is barbecued fresh using real oak for that great smoky flavor. So visit my friends, Corey, Jed, and Kurt, at the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 600 West Bay Drive, or call them for a takeout order at 727-501-9090. That's 727-501-9090. They truly have the best smoking barbecue in town. Oh, and be sure and check out their great barbecue sauce. That's the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 727-501-9090. I'm telling Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars sent you. This is Robert from Nostalgic Video and Cars, here to tell you about Bellador's Pizza and Pasta, where the food is fresh, the sauce homemade, and the price is fantastic. They offer Chicago-style stuffed crust pizza, New York-style pizza, calzones, strombolis, pasta entrees, beer wine, and great desserts. They even make the bread fresh daily. Hey, they offer catering, and any order over 10 bucks, free delivery. So give them a call at 727-581-5000. Place your order now. They're located at 131 Clearwater Lager Road near downtown Largo. Or visit their website, belladorspizza.com. From drawing board to checkered flag in one year. Jim Clark whips the new Lotus Ford around Zanfurt in the 67 Dutch Grand Prix, breaking all lap records and giving first victory for the new car. In the previous summer, Ford decided to take their already strong involvement in motorsport right to the top and go for the 1967 Grand Prix season. That's very compact, Keith. What power do you think it'll put out? Well, I should hope we get over 400 from the start, anyhow. 400. Should. Sounds pretty good. What will it weigh? I'm doubtful about weights. I should think about just under 400 pounds, anyhow. Might be lucky and get it down to 350. What do you think, Colin? Well, I think it really is a tremendous opportunity. This was a historic meeting, and one that was to change the course of events in the 1967 season. It took place as late as August 1966 at Ford's Design and Engineering Center in Essex. I think that's really great. I think that this is the first time we've been able to get coordinate the build of an engine and a chassis together and design each one to suit the other. And with the sort of weight and simplicity and power that keeps coming up, I think we're going to have a fabulous motor car. That's what impresses me, that, we, that the car and engine are together. Really, it's going to be a development season, isn't it? Racing to see how it's working out. Do you think you could make that important? Well... It depends how things go when we first build it. If, it. if we build it and it runs and doesn't fall apart, then we can make Zandvoort. If we have a lot of... Colin Chapman, with his flair and experience of Formula One racing, and Keith Duckworth, acknowledged top engine designer, joined Ford directors round their conference table to get this new racing plan off the ground. Some trouble all year. <laughs> You're pulling our leg, Keith. <laughs> no. you, you always run right the first time out. No, no, just because we've had a few examples of that happening doesn't mean to say it's going to happen next time. I think the best way to sort the problems out is to get the engine in the car as soon as possible and run it. There's no substitute for getting going. There's no substitute for racing. Well, so far as Ford's concerned, we're ready to go, aren't we, Harley? We sure are. Well, I'm, yeah, I'm all for it. And second time out. Clark and Hill, front row on the grid. But for Graham, a jammed clutch leaves him nearly two minutes behind leader and teammate Clark. Mm-hmm. 
Francochon is a pictorial rural circuit in the Belgian Ardennes. It's also the fastest road circuit in Europe. Jim Clark achieved a record 150 miles per hour in practice, proving the engine's 400 brake horsepower. Gearbox trouble for Graham Hill, but the pace is still hot at the front, with Rint, Stewart and Eamon after Clark Lotus. Although fourth in the World Championship Series, this is only the second appearance of the new cars. Now, with Hill in trouble, all eyes turn to Jim Clark. way out in front and going in great style, thundering through on his last lap to the chequered flag. For Jim Clark, these nine days in summer started with an untried car and ended as they began with the victor's laurels. The world champion with two wins and some consistent placings is Denny Hulm. But Clark sharing his laurels, had already equaled Fangio's record of 24 Grand Prix wins with his fourth victory of the season. His place in the history of the sport is assured. Hello out there. Peabody and Sherman here. Set the Wayback Machine. We enter the Wayback and we're immediately hurtled back through time and space. Hi everybody, this is David Hobbs, racing driver and speed commentator, and you're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Okay, listeners, welcome. You're tuned into Nostalgic Radio and Cars. I'm your show host, Robert. Hey, I got it right for a change. Hey, Cedric, how you doing this evening? What did you get right? What did you, did I, you know? I announced myself. Normally I say just the show host and I forget to say who I am. Oh. Yeah. I thought it was implied. That I thought you did that on purpose because everyone knows who you are. Well, yeah, I'd say for the most part, but once in a while, it's, you know, for our new listeners, I need to kind of probably introduce myself from time to time. Makes sense. Okay. Anyway, hey, run to your computers and Google Tantalk1340.com. You can see the, <coughs> excuse me, I still, you know, I still have this cold, <coughs> this cough thing. Anyway, you can see us live here in the studio, the Tantalk, no, the Tantalk Radio Network. That's what it is, right? Anyway, Google Tantalk1340.com and you can see us live here in the studio. Don't forget to run to your computers and also Google Golfstream Motorsports. That's our website, okay? If you've missed any of our past shows, you can Google, also go to our website. It, it is Nostalgic Radio and Cars. There's a podcast there with cool pics and text, and you can listen to all our past shows. All 197, 98 of them now so far? No, we're coming up on 200. I know we're, that We're much. coming up on 200. This is, it'd be four years in the first, uh, second week of May. How about that? Four years I've been doing this. If you'd asked me this four years ago, I would have said, I, I don't know, you know. But at any rate, let's see what else. Oh, yeah, don't forget, check out our stuffs page. I got a couple of uh, da 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 I think I got one or two T-shirts left. I do have some decals. As a matter of fact, you know what we'll do? I'll let you queue up the uh, the "Let's Make a Deal" song thingy, and then I'll do a little radio giveaway here. It's, uh, price is right. The price is right. Why do I always say? What did I say? We let's can get a- we can get the "Let's Make a Deal" music though. No, that's okay. I think price is right is probably more appropriate, right? Yeah, sure. Why not? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And don't forget to go to our Facebook page, Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and Gulfstream Motorsports, and give us a big 
I have actually... <coughs> there we go again. <coughs> Should I edit that or just leave the cough you're, in there? I think you're faking the cough. No, seriously. There's think, something in my... It's like a little... <coughs> I can't... Like I a think, feather. I think a, you're looking for sympathy from the listeners. So you're... Sympathy? Pretending to <laughs> Anyway, um... But, uh, let's see. Oh, yeah. On our Gulfstream Motorsports Facebook page, I finally decided to figure out what I was going to do with that. So I've been adding little pictures on it. So just for, for drill, in fact, you can go ahead and Google it, pull it up, and then you yeah, can Google see some it. of the stuff I got. Because I put some pictures on there and a little text under there and some stuff like that. It's kind of like a little timeline thing. And then, of course, the stuff that I kind of run across from time to time. Although, if you go to the Nostalgic Radio and Cars Facebook page, that generally has all the events that I attend and things like that. Speaking of events, this past weekend, of course, on Friday, there wasn't much going on. On Saturday, though, they had this little car show thing going on. Actually, there was two. There was Fantasy of Flight going on, the Mustangs and Mustangs. And I've been to that year after year after year after year. So I thought it decided to do something different because a buddy of mine invited me up to uh, this little car club up in, uh, I'm going to say Pasco County. And it was put on by a car club called the Hellions. Now, you would appreciate these guys because they were playing some serious rockabilly music. Cedric, some you know they had the bass. What's the big tall? That's a bass, right? The big tall one. The yeah, instrument. Stand up bass. Yeah, yeah, stand up bass. Uh, lead guitar, and then a check on the drums. And she was doing pretty good. You know, they're all tatted out, and they got the kind of groovy looking, uh, you know, beatney look to them, and the you know the the late fifties kind of style, you know, that was going on back in the day, the hot rod thing. So it was pretty cool. They had probably about uh, I'd say seventy five to one hundred cars come and go, and it was a three day event. So I met some really cool people up there. Uh, some really nice cars. Um, a lot of old school hot rods. Then you had some fifties customs you know the typical 50s style you know a little bit lower type with cruisers with the the tricked out hubcaps like the the deluxe hubcap which was kind of a thing back then cruiser skirts on them leg pipes uh flames on the hood you know things like that the shiny metal flake nagahide type interiors metal flake steering wheels you know things like that it was pretty cool so they had a really neat 58 chevy was up there a nice 56 a very nice Hot rod style, actually a uh, Arizona car was a 1932 Ford V8, all steel, louvered hood in the back, louvered deck lid. Uh, and the thing about that car is he was running a Ford with a set with uh, six, eight Strombergs on it, which I thought was kind of interesting because you typically don't see that. Plus a blower underneath it, so he had a blower between the motor and the uh, and the carbs. So that was kind of very old school, and it was all Ford. The only thing that was late model on it is he had billet wheels on it, but they were replicas of the original rocket wheels, like they used on the dragsters back in the day, and the the spindle style in the front. And then he had pie crust uh, slicks on there with uh, sort of Halo brand knockoffs or reproductions. So it was a very very tasteful car. Um, excuse me again. <coughs> on Sunday. On Sunday was Festivals of Speed down in St. Pete, and it was absolutely amazing. We got there at uh, 7 in the morning, but just to back up a second, what I had to do on Saturday, yet yeah, Saturday I went down to a friend of mine because I invited him to come up to uh, Festivals of Speed, and these are elderly gentlemen, they're in their 70s, and they run these race cars that are um, like uh, pre-war race cars. So they're very, very reminiscent of the old school race cars. Some of them have some history to them. Some of them are complete recreations and stuff. But anyway, so my friend Bob also has a 62 Porsche race car. So I went down there and fetched that, put that on my rollback, and then he tow-dallied his other race car up the next day. So he'd have both cars at the event. And uh, so we got there like around 6.30, 6.40, something like that, and the place was already getting packed and backed up. We went in, we unloaded. Uh, by 8 o'clock, there were so many cars. I mean, 5th, 7th, Beach Drive, there were it was a mile long. That's how many cars were coming in there. So obviously, I'm not. I'm usually just one of the judges. I don't really help, you know, kind of lay out the the field and stuff. But this time they were short staffed, so naturally I volunteered. And uh, my job was to kind of get the cars in and then go to the main field, which is on the waterfront there, right across from the Vinoy, and um, line the cars up. We had some beautiful stuff. We had a 1929, really a great Gatsby era uh, 29. 
Chrysler Imperial. Very, very, very exquisitely restored. We had, uh, obviously, your, your, your Lamborghinis, your Ferraris. Birchmiths were there with the Porsches. Dimmit was there with Rolls Royces and Cadillacs and McLarens and stuff. And uh, the local Lamborghini club was there. The Ferrari club was there. Some pretty cool stuff. There was a tricked-out 55 pro touring car there, a nice-looking 69 Camaro. My friend Don brought his panels race car down there. Kenny brought his uh, race cutlass, open headers. Uh, Todd Warner brought a bunch of his race cars down there, the Dino Don Nicholson drag car, uh, one of the Sox and Martin cars, one of the original 71, 72 Petty uh, NASCARs, um, tons of uh, vintage Porsches. A guy bought a beautifully restored 1965 Porsche there to commemorate the 50 years of Porsche, or the Porsche 911. Just some beautiful stuff. I mean, we had BMW Z8. You had the typical, there was a vintage uh, 190SL Mercedes. Uh, our good friends, uh, Chris Forte from Forte's Automotive, brought his beautifully restored 1975 Bronco. Gorgeous, gorgeous car. There was a stunning 57 Chevrolet convertible there, a silver car with red interior. Just really, really cool stuff. But the thing that amazed me more than anything else, the gate, the amount of people that were there. We had roughly 20 plus thousand people coming and going. It was nonstop all day long. And then I kind of got put on the spot because typically I judge, but at the last minute I said, hey, Robert, do you think you can handle a mic? And I said, well, I've used one once or twice. A mic, you know, this thing right here. Is that coming through? That thing? That mic. Mic, mic. I don't think you're doing it right. I'm not doing it right. Let me just hit on it harder. Oh, okay. That that came through that time? Okay. Anyway, so uh, I was the MC. So at first I was a little chicken because I'm sitting here in a, in a studio and I'm staring at you through a glass. So, you know, I can motion to you and we can go back and forth and you can flip the mic on and off. And if I have to during a commercial or a song, I can run around and say something. But here, you know, you, there's no, uh, there, it's a one shot deal. You know, like if you see these guys, like you see Dennis Gage, you see Stacey David or some of those guys when, or Barry McGuire, when they do their interviews on TV, they're gonna have, if they don't like something, they'll do take one, take two, take three. We don't have that because we only have 54 minutes in the show, so we can't pre-tape unless we pre-interview somebody. But when you're on the spot and you're emceeing, it's, hey, whatever goes, goes. So once I got kind of acclimated to what I had to do, then it was just kind of a natural thing. So talking to talk, walking to walk, I met some really interesting people. We did some really cool um, interviews. Uh, there's guys there with British cars, with German cars, with vintage classic American cars. <coughs> custom cars just just there was something there truly for everybody a special shout out to uh, joe sabatini he did a great job down there at festivals of speed good friends mike flynn and his crew were down there with uh, hollywood car auctions uh again shout out to bert smith shout out to uh who else was there geez everybody was there you know i mean uh, reeves import motor cars brought some cars over there just a lot of local companies had stuff there plus there was a number of other vendors there was a, a company there and you would like to too these guys are they go by uh, santiago cycles i think and if you're into old vintage bikes, kind of like cafe racers, they had some really wicked bikes there. They had some old Ducatis. Um, they had Triumphs. They had Hondas, you know, the usual stuff. But they went with that uh, kind of cafe, vintage European, late 50s, early 60s cafe racer style bikes. That was pretty cool. I liked that. I enjoyed it a lot. Those are pretty neat. So we talked to those guys. Um, all in all, it was just a pretty cool show. And of course, then the awards presentation was, uh, my responsibility so that worked out real good and i did a little bit differently than the guys did it in the past and that was i actually interviewed the people the recipients of the award so that was kind of cool anyway i think we got a song spinning around on our turntable oh this is uh, this isn't on a turntable is that on a turntable no this, a, this is from the 90s we're playing it off oh of, wait a minute do we have the uh, prices right thing it's a, it's a it's a compact disc okay if you ever heard of that compact disc okay hey it's uh, radio giveaway time. Give us a call here at the studio, 727-441-3000, 727-441-3000. And if you call in, I have a couple of decals 
nostalgic radio and cars decals. Really cool. It's got our little signature logo, 1957 Thunderbird Gasser. You know, that's kind of cool. So there goes the phones. They're ringing up already. I can see them letting up. He's got the tone turned down in there so you can't hear him, but I can see him flashing. That was the other thing I had to do while I was emceeing. I had to learn to talk a little slower, more uh, enunciate and things like that. Of course, here, you know, on the radio show, we've only got 54 minutes, so I'm trying to run my mouth as quick as I can to get out as much information as possible in the shortest amount of time. There, I had pretty much all day to do and say as I please, so it was pretty cool. So I look forward to doing it uh, next time because they said I did an okay job, and hey, if I want the gig, I got it. Anyway, all right, let's go ahead and uh, flip on that. What you say it was a compact Com- disc? Yeah, it's a compact well, that's, disc. That's modern technology. No, this, is, this is a release from the 90s. Is re- oh, the song? Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know so, what? So, so we, we, we threw the turntable out. We threw the, okay, well, now this song is kind of a cool song. It's not one you typically hear on the radio all the time, but the band is a Scottish band, lad, and it's Simple Minds. And our special guest coming on a little bit later in the show is originally from Scotland. Oh, he's a Scotsman. He's a Scotsman, yeah. And, uh, of course, that's why we played the uh, Jimmy Clark thing at the beginning, because Jimmy Clark was, you know, one of the greatest race car drivers ever. And he was a Scotsman as well. So is Jackie Stewart. And uh, how am I doing with my Scottish very accent? Good. I'm getting very, there. Very good, yeah. I do German better, but well, I'm practicing my Scottish set. You know, what's his name? Craig Ferguson. He's a Scotsman also. Anyway, this song is called Hypnotized by Simple Minds. Groovy song. Hey, you're tuning into Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Stick around. We've got a great guest coming on. And we will be back in a short, short.
Hi, this is Nick Mason from Pink Floyd, and you're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Hi, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. If you'd like to play golf, Magnolia Valley Golf Club is offering some specials this week. Give them a call up there at 727-847-2342. They have a 9-hole executive course, and they have an 18-hole par 72. And they've got great food on the 19th hole. So call my friend Pete at 727-847-2342. And be sure to tune in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Yes, I'll sit with you 
and talk, let your eyes relive again. I know my vintage prayers will be very much the same. Magdalena plays the organ, plays it just for you. You call I'm the band solo when you are passing through. Oh, it's hated its day, I'm afraid. But it's never let me down. M's orders, 007. You'll be using this Aston Martin DB5 with modifications. Now, pay attention, please. Windscreen bulletproof, as are the side and the rear windows. Revolving number plates, naturally. Valid all countries. Anything else? Well, I won't keep her for more than an hour or so, if you'll give me your undivided attention. We've installed some rather interesting modifications. You see this arm here? Now open the top, and inside are your defense mechanism controls. Smoke screen, oil slick, rear bulletproof screen, and left and right front wing machine guns. Now this one I'm particularly keen about. You see the gear lever here? Now if you take the top off, you'll find a little red button. Whatever you do, don't touch it. No, why not? Because you'll release this section of the roof and engage and fire the passenger ejector seat. Ejector seat? You're joking. I never joke about my work, 007. Hi, this is Sam Posey, formerly a racing driver and today a commentator for NBC Sports covering Formula One. And you are listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Okay, we're back. Thank you, Mr. Posey. Well, you know, you guys know that I've always gone to races. Jeez, I've been going to races since the 70s. But anyway, this next guest that I'm going to introduce here, I used to uh, go to Sebring and Daytona all the time through the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And I had an opportunity to watch this gentleman race um, the champion Porsche Audi car, the 993 Porsche, through the late 90s. And... uh, and he did an amazing job, probably one of the most fluid contemporary drivers. And I wouldn't really say contemporary because he's actually been racing nearly four decades. Okay, so he started in the 70s. And uh, so he still messes around with race cars. He's also a race commentator. He's done some stuff with Speed, with ESPN, uh, with Canadian TV because he's Canadian. He is also an inductee in the Canadian Motorsport Hall of Fame. I am delighted to welcome to the show this evening, Bill Adam. Bill, are you there? I am indeed. And after that buildup, I feel like I should get my own autograph. You should. How you doing? I'm well, thank you. How are you? Pretty good. Well, thank you for taking some time out and uh, joining us here at Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Give us a little background. Tell us how you got started in racing. And then there's one kind of little, like, little significant story you might want to add, you know, when you got your license in 1971. You had a, a, a good friend of yours who's also a well-known race yeah. car driver. Uh, it, it's so true that I, I, I think I was born with a passion for for cars, and, and then when I got into sports car racing, when I started watching it and reading about it as a boy, it was something that it had to be in my blood, because neither one of my parents had any interest whatsoever in cars, and they, quite frankly, looked down on me. They said, no, 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 uh, go to school and, and become a doctor, uh, a teacher, uh, take your pick. But good Lord, don't do something as foolish as cars. And uh, thankfully, I didn't listen to them, but uh, started racing purely as a hobby. And uh, it took a a great deal of patience on my part, because my family was from Scotland, and we had no money at all, absolutely nothing. We're just ordinary working people. So it took for me to complete my education and actually get my first job in 
pay out uh, $2,350 for my first Corvette race car. And the only reason I chose a Corvette was I thought, well, it's it's a big V8, and if a piston breaks or connecting rod breaks, I can go to a Chevy dealer and buy a part, and I can probably fix it. Where as if it's an overhead cam motor, I'm dead in the water. And uh, that led me to racing. And uh, my very first year racing, of course, we you go through a novice series. You have to do three novice races, the third of which is watched by the powers of God at the racetrack that day. And my third and final novice race where if I did everything properly and didn't embarrass myself, I would be granted a, a national license. Bobby Rahal happened to turn up on the same day driving his dad's Porsche 906 race car. And I can remember going down and getting introduced to Bobby, and we were both just young bucks at that point, and I was so in love with Bobby's car. Oh, my God, this thing, this white 906 Porsche was the sexiest race car I'd ever laid eyes on. And he and I had a wonderful, wonderful race. We were both working so darn hard throughout the whole 20 laps of it that and felt like the 24 hours of Le Mans at that point in my career. But I was lucky enough to win because Bobby spun with one lap to go, and uh, I had led him all 20, but he was never more than two feet away from me. And we still laugh about it to this day. We're, we're very close friends, and we still get a chuckle out of that. Let's back up just for a second. Your very first car, the $2,300 Corvette, somewhere I was reading that when you sold that car, you weren't quite aware of what exactly you had, but that car turned out to be 001, one of, what is it, four or five of the original Grand Sport Corvettes? Yeah, you are correct. Um, it was chassis 001, and uh, when I bought it, it was nothing more than an old race car. It had been raced for years, and it was a little bit tired and Back then, nobody thought about heritage. My God, I can remember seeing ads for Ferrari GTOs. Uh, one in particular, I remember distinctly in a magazine that used to be called Sports Car Graphic, and it was for sale for $6,800. Well, a GTO Ferrari about four months ago was just sold for $53 million. So hindsight, that's a wonderful trick. But, yeah, I'd raced my Grand Sport for a full season and I thought I was the smartest guy in the world being able to buy it for 2350 and sell it for 2900 And currently the car is worth about $3 million, so don't listen to me if I give you tips on the stock market. <laughs> also, I was reading when you were a young child, or, or young, and I should say, and you went to one of the races, there was a really cool sports car there. And Tell us that story a little bit, what the guy did to you. Well, He slightly misled you, right? He, he did mislead me, and it made a, a major point in my life that this was a race called the Players 200, and it was June 14th of 1961, and here I am, this little tiny tyke that I went to the track with a cousin of mine who was a flagger. He was a marshal at the track, and there was no worries about a child being abducted or anything like that, and uh, I was just wandering around with my little camera looked at this red sports car, and it had wire wheels on it, and I wanted to put a fellow working on it. In my naive way, I said, excuse me, is this a Ferrari? And he turned and looked at me and said, yes, of course it is. Can't you see that? <laughs> so I snapped my picture, and I spent 50 cents on the magazine or whatever it was at that point, the, uh, the track magazine. 
A long time later, when I'd saved up enough money to develop the film, I started matching up my pictures with the program, and lo and behold, there was this red number, whatever it was, Triumph Special. And I thought, why did he lie to me? I, I couldn't understand why this guy had lied to me. And it made a major impression on me that I always felt you have to give back to the sport. It's a wonderful, wonderful sport that we all enjoy, and you have to give back to it. So I love talking with people, young, old, and I always get a great kick when somebody will come over to me at a racetrack after a broadcast that I do and say, hey, I heard you say this. I didn't realize that, and thanks for explaining it. And that gives me special joy in doing that. When you, um, early in the show, I played a clip from Jimmy Clark, and growing up in the 60s, uh, and you're a year, few years ahead of me, but Jimmy Clark was just an amazing driver. You know, it's kind of like, he, you know, in the United States, we had Dan Gurney, who was a very fluid guy. Penske was very fluid, yeah. but, you know, Jimmy Clark was just uh, an amazing driver, and he just made such an, an impact in the racing world, particularly in Europe, and particularly because of Formula One, which is the creme de la creme of racing, you know, by, by most drivers' standards. And uh, and then, of course, Jackie Stewart, you know, the other Scotsman, well-known. And um, so you were influenced, and he was kind of like a inspiration to you, wasn't he, Jimmy Clark? Yeah, no, no question about it. Jimmy Clark is uh, and always, wa- always will be my hero. I, I just... I was so in awe of not only his ability, because I can remember looking, you know, once again, I can think back to sports car graphic, where there'd be a picture of all these Formula One cars on the grid, like France, for example, at Rims, and uh, Clark would be on the pole, and then there's a picture one lap later of these cars in the front straight, and he would have a 200-yard lead. It was astonishing what he was doing, but the thing that, that... really impressed me so much is that much like Dan Gurney, much like uh, Joe Montana in NFL football, he was such a low-key, extremely humble personality, and I admired that so much. I still do. I, I still admire great athletes who have the grace to accept their uh, accolades quietly and humbly. That, that, to me, is what we should all aspire to. Well, Bill, I got to tell you this. Um, you know, when I was hanging around in the pits back in the day in the in the '90s and uh, early 2000s, you know, they said the same thing about you: an extremely fluid driver, very talented, very nice guy, very humble. And uh, so, the same characteristics that Jimmy Clark had and guys like Dan Gurney, you possess those as well. I, I mean, I'm so flattered that you say that, and believe me, I'm very sincere on that. And it was always something that. I wanted to do. I, I look at, at the two extremes, and, and there are some athletes who have tremendous talent, but they seem to uh, want the world to focus on them. De- Dennis Rodman, perhaps, his name jumps to mind, in that he's obviously an incredibly gifted athlete, brilliant, brilliant athlete, but because of his antics off the court and his very selfish attitude, he takes away all of the appeal for me, and I love... Uh, I love quiet, giving people. I, I, I'm, I like to be a giver, not a taker. And I think uh, we need to pay it forward, as the saying goes. Take us through uh, your early years. So, so once you got your driver's license, and uh, the next car you bought was also a Corvette. So, and then you were doing some, what, Trans Am racing at the time, too? You got into that? Well, I eventually got into Trans Am. But, um, again, with the Scottish uh, raising and the history 
you're you're kind of taught uh, don't ever think that you're special because you're not. You have to prove every day that you're worthy of praise. And uh, even when I went through my my novice races and got my national license, I had quite good success. And people would come up and say, "Yeah, geez, you're you're doing a remarkable job." And I would always just say, "Thank you very much," and think. Remarkable in, in what sense, and, and to what degree, and, and what are their standards? That if you put uh, a, a blind man in a Prius and step hard in the gas, he's going to think that car is really fast. Well, maybe by the, the standards of of his sensory uh, feelings, the car is quick at that point. But in reality, it's not. So it depends on who's giving you the praise. And I I, I remember. My father was one who was loath to praise. Finally, one day, he came to one of my races at Mosport because uh, he didn't believe in it. He thought it was this incredible waste of money, which it probably was at the time. But uh, he came up, and uh, I happened to win a race up against some really superior cars, a Porsche 908 being one of them, and I was driving a big block Corvette at the time. And uh, he came over after the race and said, he did a good job to win it, and he patted me in the shoulder. That was so huge that I still remember to this day. I was almost shocked that my dad had given me praise. Well, coming from your father, that's that's extra special, isn't it? It was. It, it, it meant a lot. And, uh, you know, there, there's certain people that make huge impressions on you. Um, bringing up the name of Dan Gurney again, uh, I used to go and watch Dan race at Mosport and thought, here was this tall, quiet, handsome Californian, and he was so gracious with the fans and, and always had time for autographs and a, a smile and a quiet word, and just, uh, he was everybody's hero. And many years later, when I was doing broadcasting for, uh, I think it was ESPN, one day, we were at the Detroit Grand Prix. <clears throat> Pardon me. Dan was running the two Eagles, I think, with uh, Jones and Juan Fangio Jr. And I was walking down the, through the, the paddock, and Dan was walking towards me. And I, of course, I and everybody at the track knew who Dan Gurney was. And as we got closer, he looked and he said, Morning, Bill. How are things going? And I about dropped everything I had in my hands. I thought, My God, he knows my name. That's amazing, isn't it, when you think about that? Just shocking. I, I treasure that memory. When you were um, coming up through the ranks in some of these cars, and when you, because you know, you, you, you had a reputation for being a very fluid driver. I've had a number of drivers on here in the past, and uh, they said that they were pretty hard on equipment, and they would compliment drivers like Dan Gurney, Bob Bondron, who were very fluid. Okay, even Penske was extremely fluid. And. Yeah. <clears throat> There's a lot to be said for that because the equipment lasted. The cars, you know, didn't get destroyed or anything like that. And, and what people don't realize yeah. in racing, racing is almost a game of attrition. So your yeah. equipment is very, very important. And so having said that, when did you determine, I mean, was, you know, like they were talking about Jimmy, St- uh, Jimmy Clark, uh, just a natural born driver. Do you feel that you had natural talents? And do you believe that people do have natural talents when it comes to racing? Oh, I do, uh, 100%. It's one of these things that um, some of the sports that I like when I'm not in a car, uh, I really enjoy playing tennis, but 
on my best day ever, multiplied by 10, I will never be a Wimbledon caliber player. I just, I don't have that God-given ability, but I would also hope that uh, Andy Murray or anybody wouldn't have the ability to get into a car and do what I can do. I think we're all born with certain gifts, and uh, sometimes you can polish those gifts and get really, really good results from them, but when it gets to the, the the top level of any sport, whether it's car racing or skiing or tennis or whatever, you have to be born with the the abilities inside you, and then it's a case of starting the polishing. Now, you mentioned that the fluidity, that, in my particular case, stems back to my Scottish upbringing, in that I realized the first time I bought that, that race car, the Corvette Grand Sport, that I thought, if I blow it up, my season's over. And if I crash it, my entire career might be over because I just simply didn't have the money to do anything about it. So I had to learn very early on to drive as quickly as I could, but with a great deal of mechanical empathy. And I, in fact, my first three races, I ran on the same set of race tires, practiced, qualified, and raced on the same tires because I couldn't afford another set. So... You learn to do to the best of your ability with what you have right there and then. And in hindsight, it was wonderful training for me because it it taught me to conserve a car, to conserve fuel. When I joined the Jaguar team in 1980, and we eventually started running the GTP cars, I was co-driving first with Bob Tullius and in the last year with Brian Redmond, who was another one of my heroes. And I was consistently able to get far better fuel mileage than either of them, even driving at the same pace, because I had just acquired the ability to, you, you back off the gas, like when at Daytona, for example, you're crossing the start-finish line at 200 and whatever, 210 miles an hour back then. Before you got to your brake marker, you would back off a second earlier. And just that little bit, instead of it being full throttle at 7,000 RPM, where you're burning an enormous amount of fuel at high RPM, suddenly you're closing the throttle and you save that one second of fuel. You really don't slow down all that much, but you just save that fuel. And I was consistently able to get eight or 10 minutes more on a tank of fuel by doing that. So it, all of those things and not having the money to do it with actually ended up helping me in the long run. When you first started driving and you went through, let's just say, normally it's in the United States it's SCCA and you go through the rookie course and stuff like that, and they generally they stick an instructor in the car with you. Did you did they do that back in those days, or did you pretty much just get in the car, get behind the wheel, and just start driving? Yeah, I had a, a past Canadian champion with me as my instructor when I went through the driver's school, a, a gentleman named Francis Bradley, and I'm sure that nobody has ever heard of him, but I had because I watched him at Beausport and. He, too, he was uh, an Englishman. That I believe his profession was a bus driver. <laughs> and he, was, he was excellent. And uh, I remember being so grateful that I had been given him as my instructor that day. And uh, it, it was great. I, I thoroughly enjoyed that part. When uh, there was an interview with uh, Jimmy Clark, and he was honest. He says, there's never a moment that goes by. When I'm not frightened, I'm scared. I truly am racing. Now, a lot of drivers won't admit that. What's your take on that? Because 
that and and by the way, I do drive. I've 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 been licensed for a number of years as well, but I do vintage and stuff. And there's when you push the car, and I'll give you a good example. Turn one at Sebring has always scared the crap out of me. Turn seventeen is oh. not a problem, but turn one has always been a nightmare for me. So, do you did that? Were you did you did you experience fear? In other words, um, I I don't know if I experienced fear. Um, I without question experienced uncomfortable points in the car. Okay. Under under good conditions, um, in a in a good car, it's a case of uh, you are you're doing a job. I, I'm doing a job. I have no emotion when I'm doing it. It's neither pleasant, it's not bad, not good. If I become aware of the heat inside the car, it's a momentary thing and I push that out of my mind. And there have been cases where I've spent an hour and a half in a race car, and suddenly the crew chief will call me in, and I'll think, what's wrong? Why is he calling me in so soon? Because it, it feels like I've been in the car eight or nine minutes, and it may be an hour and a half. It's just a total concentration. The uncomfortable times come when situation is under less than ideal conditions, and Le Mans is one of those. You're going so fast, or we used to go so fast down the Mulsanne Strait, the last time I raced there was in a Porsche, what was it called, a 962C. This was for uh, Brun Motorsports, who were, they were world champions that year. Uh, our car was 244 miles an hour down the Molson Strait. And you would start doing that, and the roadway was crowned because you're on a normal little road, and so that they built a crown for rain runoff. And first of all, when you would try to move from the the left-hand side to the right-hand side to get ready for the kink. The car didn't want to move, and you're running these Michelin radials, and you would turn the steering wheel a little bit to the left, and it wouldn't do a thing. And you would turn it a little bit more to the left, and it still would be going in a straight line. you turn it a little bit more, and suddenly the car would dart from the right side of the road to the left. Well, it was bad enough doing that in the dry, but in the rain in the middle of the night, you talk about uncomfortable, you would rather be any place in the world than in that seat at that point. It was just like it would double your heart rate every time it did that. I can't imagine that. 245, let's just call it 250 miles an hour on the Molson Strait towards the end before you have to do some hard braking to the right and in the rain and the car would dart on you? It would dart. And I was, it was... I mean, to call it uncomfortable, if you didn't have listeners, I'd use some other words that would okay. be far more graphic and descriptive, but uh, holy jeez, this thing, and it was just, it was so quick. It, it was fascinating, too, because it, it, it was a painted, like a dotted white line down the middle of the road, allowing passing. Well, at night, the glow of your headlights off those white painted strips were such that you're your eyes just couldn't keep up with it. And it was, was so interesting. We all talked about it. And that at nighttime, that became a solid white line. And the first time you did it, you went, I could, I could have sworn that was a dotted white line. And it was. But at night with this, I don't know what they did, the doctors call it, but it just all went together. And then the same thing, you'd watch your windshield wiper go maybe three or four inches off the glass. It would be getting this weird backdraft of aerodynamics where a wiper was out there doing nothing, waving itself in the in the wind at that ridiculous speed. And the only good part about that is your windshield was always dead clean because the rain would blow off so fast 
nothing was adhering to the curved shape of that, that Porsche windscreen. You got to drive some pretty amazing cars. You talk about the 962 Porsche, and you also drove the Jaguar, the Group uh, 44, the Bob Tullius car. Tell us a little bit about yeah. the differences between the two cars. Now, the in the early 80s, you drove the Jag, and I think uh-huh. you drove the Rothman Porsche. Was it the 962, or did you drive a... Yeah, in the United States, it would have been a 962. In Europe, it was a 956. So, yeah, I actually drove, all, I drove, drove them all. Oh, you did? 56 uh, at Mosport in one of their six-hour world championship races. And the 62, and the 62 is a better car because it was a little bit longer chassis, so it was easier and more uh, more gentle in its transitions, maybe the best way to put. But purely and simply, they all pale by comparison to the Audi R8 that I raced. That was just such an astonishingly great race car. Not a lot of horsepower, maybe 650, 670 range, but... The car's ability to work with you, it did everything to help you, it did nothing to hurt you, and it was only a clean car. Now, when did you race the Audi? During what uh, period? Uh, from about 2002 up until, I think the last time I drove it was in 2011, yeah. in some vintage races. Okay, now the, the Audi R8, would you say that just because it's so technologically advanced over the 62, the 56, and then the Jaguar Group 44 car, that uh, that's what that's 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 the, the big plus with the Audi? Yeah, I think uh, I, really a series of things, Robert. The, uh, the Jag was a lot of fun to drive. I really liked that car, but because it had this big, tall V12 engine in the back, it had a very high roll center, which I don't want to get technical with your, your listeners, but... Um, it could make the car tail happy very easily. The Porsche, for example, had this flat six that was a very low mount in the car, in the chassis, and even the turbos on the on the Porsche were mounted very low. So it was an incredibly stable car. And the Porsche really showed its class and, and its ability to do well on every kind of course, from high speed to street courses. It was just a very good car. Well, Audi took that premise of having a, a small 3.6-liter twin-turbo V8 engine. It was mounted very low in the chassis, but with the improvements that Audi made through uh, shock absorbers particularly and springs, the car was it was as close to a perfect race car as has ever been built. Uh, Audi would never admit it, but the R8 was a lot better than the R10, and it has taken right up into the R18 to go a lot faster. Uh, the R18, it's a quicker car, but it's not nearly as nice a car to drive. Does Porsche have a lot of influence with the Audi program? I suppose ultimately they do because uh, they work so closely together. But there is very little sharing of uh, of information. Really, and a you know good good example is just recently at Sebring. Both Audi and Porsche were there with their new Le Mans prototype, mm-hmm. and they were so jealous of somebody grabbing your secret that Audi used the pit lane for their pit stop. Porsche used the back straight for their pit lane. Huh. They didn't even want to be in the same section of track. That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about sibling rivalry. It was a bitter rivalry, too. It, it, you know, it used to be a case that you could look at NASCAR when the, when the uh, late Pontiac uh, was a good runner in NASCAR. That Pontiac and Chevrolet shared nothing, even though they were under the General Motors banner. 
Speaking of which, you had a, a stint or two uh, on a NASCAR course. Was it Watkins Glen where you raced? Yeah, a lot of fun. I, I really like that, actually. Tell us about that. Well, it, was, it, it actually went back a little bit further in that uh, in around 1975, I'll take a guess at, there was a NASCAR race came to Mosport. And I had watched the NASCAR stalkers up there a few previous years and watched them and looked like those guys were having so much fun. Big old things sliding around the corners. And I got on the phone one day and phoned an engine builder I knew and said, how can I possibly get a ride? I'd been lucky enough to have won the Canadian Championship the year before, so I at least had a little bit of a credential to flash in front of somebody. And he suggested somebody who suggested somebody else. Well, the long and the short of it was, I found a car at Brovit that was it was excellent. It was really a good car, and uh, ended up qualifying the car third. Uh, Bobby Allison was on the pole, and Richard Petty was second, and I sat third. And had a catastrophic engine failure on about the third lap of the race, which broke my heart. It's one of the greatest disappointments I've ever gone through because the fellows on this crew and the car owner, I wanted to win so badly for them. They were so nice. And the following year, NASCAR decided to have their first ever race at Watkins Glen. The same owner phoned me up and said, want to try it again? So went down to the Glen, and uh, I put his car on the pole, and we were 1.8 seconds ahead of second place. So it helped to be a sports car driver on those tracks. Absolutely. Absolutely. Actually, you know what? We've got a few minutes left here, but uh, I, what I'd like to do is I'd like to have you come back on the show again sometime and talk a little bit about some of your co-drivers that you uh, drove with, like Bob Tullius and, of course, Hunch Duke, Del Egan Meister, and uh, some of the other guys, and then obviously some stories, some pit stories and stuff like that, and some close calls. Also, now, you were telling me earlier that your daughter, Shay, she's, uh, she's a pit reporter now. Tell us a little bit about her, because we'd like to have her on the show yeah, sometime. Yeah, Well... Shay has been coming to the races with me since uh, she was just a little tiny tyke, and so she's grown up with uh, sports car racing, and it's, it's in her blood. And uh, a few years ago, we were doing a broadcast at Petit Le Mans, actually, and my producer happened to say, God, you know, your daughter knows more than our pit reporters know, and I'd like to put her on here sometime. Well, he did, and uh, now... Uh, she just got back from Bathurst, Australia, doing the race down there again, as she did last year. She'll be going back over to Le Mans as a pit reporter and doing Nürburgring, and she's excellent. I'm really, really proud of her, and it's, uh, it's good that I'm keeping her out of the car, because I don't want her to go faster than I did. Well, how about vintage racing or sports car racing, club racing? Does she do that? She would love to. We, we've talked about that sometime, co-driving in a race, and I, I would like to do that. I think that'd be a lot of fun. Okay, well, super. Hey, Bill, I want to thank you very much for taking a few minutes and hanging out with us here. I want to tell all my listeners, we've got a couple of upcoming events. I forgot to mention them earlier, but this weekend at uh, Bradenton Motorsports Park is the Nitro Jam. Okay, Southern Nationals, okay, the 11th through the 12th. That's down there at Bradenton Motorsports. So they got some really cool drag car and rocket car action going on down there. Also, like I mentioned before, on the 16th through the 20th of this month, up at Charlotte Motor Speedway, is the 50th anniversary of the Mustang. Huge celebration at Charlotte Motor Speedway. Uh, next week, our guest is going to be uh, Andy Powell. He's the one of the founding members and lead guitarist and vocalist for Wishbone Ash, so he will be on our show next week. Also, he will be performing at the Ringside Cafe in downtown St. Petersburg, so be sure and check that out. And don't forget, the last Friday of the month, last Friday, we're going to have... Uh, Mark Farner's going to be in town doing a live free concert for everybody in downtown Clearwater, and he's uh, going to be singing and playing with uh, Stormbringer, so that should be pretty good. That's on the 
5th. So, uh, Cedric, how are we doing on time there? we got uh, three, two minutes yet. You know what? Uh, Bill, are you still there? I am. Do you uh, do any charity work or anything like that? Any charities you want to plug? Well, it just um, I, I love charities, and I, I have one that I work on every year myself that we put on down at the Homestead Miami Speedway. It's called Rides and Smiles. And it's a day where we take uh, children with cancer for uh, laps around the speedway and the cars their dreams. And uh, thank you to uh, people like Chevrolet who send me a new Stingray and SRT send me a new Viper and Audi, the R8 sports car, on and on and on. It's just a, it's a day of giving by so many wonderful people. And we do put smiles on faces that may not have helped them for quite some time. It's uh, tremendously rewarding. Well, that's super. That's very commendable. How about uh, any classic cars? You got any classic cars in your own private collection? Oh, my God. It, I, I'm so bad on classic cars. I, I spend all my money on... Uh, I love high-speed boating. I've got a limited... Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Cat boat. Okay. It'll, it'll run 110 miles an hour any day of the week. And uh, I have a BMW motorcycle that I love dearly, too. And I'm close to getting a Shelby, a, a GT350, 1966. And that was probably going to be my first. Really? Well, I'll tell you what. It just so happens I'm one of the state reps for the Shelby Clubs, and Shelby's and Boss Mustangs uh-huh. happen to be my specialty. So when you get to that point, be sure and call me. I'll do a PPI on that car for you, pre-purchase inspection. Oh, sounds great. I really appreciate that. That's good. That's good. Cedric, how are we doing there? we got one minute left. Okay. Well, anyway, I uh, want to thank all my listeners again for tuning in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Be sure and tell your friends to tune in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars every Tuesday evening at 7 p.m. for the most fascinating and legendary names in motorsports, like our legendary guest this evening, Bill Adam. Thank you again very much. And uh, be sure and uh, check out our website, GulfstreamMotorsports.com. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, both Nostalgic Radio and Cars and Gulfstream Motorsports. I hope to see some of you guys at some of these events. In the meantime, everybody stay safe, drive carefully, love your family and take care guys Downtown Dave. I'm not here to make a record, you jump cracker. They broadcast me out on the radio. WTAN, Clearwater, Tampa Bay. WDCF, Dade City, Tampa Bay. WZHR, Zephyr Hills, Tampa Bay. Listen. You jump cracker.